Welcome back to the Graveyard Shift. I'm James Pugh. I'm Dave Burrows. Today's guest is at the heart of a topic that dominates headlines and will no doubt play a key role in the general election. Amanda Jones is founder and CEO of Shropshire Supports Refugees, a charity which helps displaced people settle and rebuild their lives in the region. Welcome, Amanda. Hi. Hello. <laughs> I'm going to start off with a tricky one. We normally lead people in gently, but we're going to start off quite difficult. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Anytime. Um, the news that we've seen in in Greece um, oh. with with the uh, with scores of, of people who've, who've drowned in a boat that was clearly packed with refugees. I mean, how for somebody in your position, when you see something like that happening, how does that make you feel? How do you react to to seeing sort of that that sort of news? Absolutely heartbreaking. It really is. And I think that I was saddened to begin with when I didn't even know any of these guys. But now I've met hundreds of people that have had to come that route. And they are all just lovely people, just humans like us, just normal. You know, imagine, take away the colour and imagine that they're just like us. Um, and you know then that the absolute horrors that they and their families are having to go through every day I don't think anybody in in the country in in Britain can really imagine the the layers of trauma that these guys have been through. And so, for example, on my Facebook feed today, one of the Syrian guys that we've been supporting for the past seven years um, posted that one of his cousins was on that boat. It's real, you know, it's mm. actual. It's not people in another dimension, nothing to do with mm. us. It's real and it, and it affects people in this county. Is there a danger that it just becomes numbers and stops becoming human beings? Because you hear, you hear X number have crossed the channel, X number have died in this. Is there a danger that we begin to desensitise to it and it just becomes statistics? Well, it definitely happens, absolutely, which is why it's so important for people to meet individuals mm. and get to know them and become their friends and realise that it is, we're, all, we're all the same and so we should treat everybody the same with the same gravity. I mean, you, you look at the last seven years, we've gone from being horrified that there was 10,000 people stuck in Calais to now realising there's 100 million displaced people across the world who have had to leave their homes because of war, poverty and persecution. It's an extraordinary figure and it's easy to go, what can I do? There's nothing, it's too big, you know? And so this is what we do. We go, it's not too big. You start on your doorstep and it grows and we can all make this into something um, that benefits us all as well. So it's about celebrating the potentials of meeting new friends, of bringing talent to the country, of bringing, um, you know, a multi-dimensional, a multi-sorry, um, multicultural vibe to places that previously haven't had that, you know, and look at how it can be done successfully and positively, and and it brings compassion to the forefront. It brings people to empathy. It it triggers their heart. You know, and that is a good thing. And it can be used not just for refugees and migrants, for everyone, all our neighbours that need help. And I feel like opportunities like this can go horribly or they can go really well. And it depends how it's managed. We're talking about this off air. Um, you mentioned there refugees and migrants. What are the differences between the different groups? In our eyes, none. And in, in the eyes of all the humanitarian groups, nothing. Mm. Human beings are human beings. Mm. They need help. You help people. It's, you know, I've always said this about the people that get the bad press about being 
far right and angry and, um, uh, you know, they also have lots of kindness in them. You know, they would help someone if they saw someone floating down the river drowning. They, they ask questions next. Second, don't they? Mm. Help someone, ask questions next. You know, would they stop and go, is that an asylum seeker? Because if it is, I'm going to let them float on. No, they would go and help those people. They help their friends and family. They're nice people. They're just trained to be afraid. Mm. And um, the media and, um, you know, some would say some elements of the government are abusing and using that, you know, to create division in that divide and I suppose conquer that's, that's always been a thing, isn't situation. it? You, 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 it's, it's that 1984 thing, isn't it? You, you pick an enemy, you pick a bad guy, yeah. uh, and you demonise that bad guy. Absolutely. And, they, and, they change the demons. Uh, yeah, but more often than not, it's somebody who looks different, yeah. sounds different. Yeah, because it's a great distraction from what they're really getting on with behind the scenes and what they ultimately want and their ultimate goals, which shall we say, which maybe is for another podcast. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I would say legally, by definition, refugees are people that have had refugee status given to them. And that is up to the government to decide often um, who they're going to give that to. So, for example, with the Syrian resettlement scheme, they were automatically given refugee status, which then gives them five years of security, five years of access to benefits and five years of support, you know, from services that are funded by the central government. Asylum seekers are people who are claiming safety. They want asylum. They want to be safe somewhere. And the government hasn't decided yet if they want to do that or not. So they put them through the asylum system, the immigration system, which have, which has been systematically dismantled for, for decades now the point where they just could not keep up with the influx of people. And I would say that's not done by accident. Certainly isn't done by lack of funds. There's lots of funds out there. Um, it's just how it's being spent that we need to ask the questions. Um, so the asylum system used to be fairly sluggish, I guess. And, 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 and you know, I, I just mentioned him before we started talking the film, uh, the documentary film Hostile by Sunita Gale. We we, filmed, we screened that last night and it was all about that. And it went right back to the days when, you know, people from Pakistan were escaping um, persecution when we gave India back um, and it broke out into civil war. You know, people had to escape for their lives. They came over here. Um, the Windrush population that came over here enticed by our government because we wanted them to do jobs that we didn't have people um, fulfilling, who are now to this day fighting to keep their British citizenship or stay in the country. Um, it was an extraordinary documentary. I highly recommend everybody goes and watches it if they can. Um, but it just goes to show how, how the government you know, can give with one hand and take away at any time that they feel like in the, by the other. And it talked about how the asylum system and the immigration system has been proudly um, advertised as hostile, really goes right back to the Tony Blair days. So this isn't a party political issue. This is a, um, you know, it goes across the two main parties. And, um, and it's grown and it's spiralled since then, thanks to, I believe, the relationship between certain elements of the government and the media. So I do wonder how things would be now if we hadn't got this constant narrative that these guys are here to steal all our jobs, rape all our women and kill all our children. They are not. And they're, you know, if you meet them, you'll, you'll know that. You can look them in the eyes and they're just so grateful for any support. Um, 
obviously we just talked about Greece closer to home again obviously mm -hmm. the media made a big deal about the the, the new record for the small boats crossing the channel mm. um and we, we you know we see we see the kind of boats they're coming in and the number of people who are in there you've touched on it a little bit but mm. what you know what is making people take those risks mm. put their lives in the hands of questionable mm. people should we say being kind um and making those perilous journeys as you say, you know, it's probably hard for us to imagine. So what, from, from your experience, from speaking to, to people who, who make it over to our country, what is it that's making them take these horrific risks to their own lives, their children's lives, to get here? There are a plethora of reasons which um, are personal to each person, um, but it all boils down to one thing. They have no safety in the countries where they were born and, and brought up for various reasons, depending on which country they're from. It's usually war and civil disruption. Um, sometimes it's persecution from governments and regimes that have got themselves into position. Um, it's nearly always anti-democratic um, issues. And it, it ultimately, these countries are in a disarray. There is no money, there are no jobs, it's too expensive to live, they can't survive in their own countries of origin, or they are running for their lives. It could also be that their, you know, sexuality is the wrong flavour for the particular government or whatever, you know? So there's all those reasons. But if you go back to 2011, where, um, you know, the, the Twin Towers were blown up, ever since then, there has been one war after another, after another. Mostly, you know, America has been involved with nearly all of those dis disruptions in countries, um, picking and choosing who they want to have in power. It, you know, it's it's a global attack on the Middle East. It's been, um, you know, Europe's gone to the dogs. Trying not to swear. <laughs> Jack's, got a, Jack's got a bleep button, don't we? <laughs> swear, swear, swear away. away yeah. <laughs> Since 2011, the world has changed. And, you know, let's look at Syria, for example. Syria apparently began because there was um, civil disruption. Um, I can't remember exactly what it was, but there was children apparently that had been um, taken by the police and tortured I don't know if they were killed or not, but the, you know, the people of Syria came out and, and protested against that. And um, as a result, their government and their police cracked down on that, leading to you know, hundreds of thousands of people being killed because they were protesting. And you know, it was a war between government and their own people, created through all sorts of different reasons, which is too complicated to go into right now. But that then has a knock-on effect, doesn't it? Then they start being pulled in um, in their thousands by um, the government and the police, tortured, killed. You know, it was a crackdown um, on democracy, on freedom of speech, and it was protests that started that. Iran, the same protests. Iraq, protest. That, you know, ultimately there was for every war, there are multiple people who can benefit from it the sharks come in, the governments, the different people who want to, to rule those countries, um, corporations who make money from these things. The, you know, the military industrial complex is the one that always wins, isn't it? And um, the corporations behind those hmm. are the winners, no matter what happens. And so they're not going to stop war. It's a beneficial thing for too many people. 
and um, they will think of one reason after another. Um, obviously, yeah, you said migrant crossings have been a big topic in the news for some time. Um, what do you think of the uh, PM's plans to end small boat channel crossings? And do you agree with him that it's working? Of course it's not working and it won't work because these people have got nothing to lose. It's like the people I've spoken to in the hotels that say they were going to die where they were. The only thing they had was um, the chance of living through that journey. And most of them come here to families that they've got, family members or relatives that they've got or friends. Um, their families back home sell everything they've got, go into huge amounts of debt to get their loved ones to a safe place. And then as soon as they get here, the pressure's on to pay those, you know, those traffickers back. And, you know, we get the figures of who's drowned in the water mm. or how many people die. Well, you could triple, quadruple and more those figures. Mm. I would say millions of people have died in those journeys mm. trying to get yeah. to safety. Yeah. So the answer is to sort themselves out, get a decent, fully functioning immigration processing system with some, um, you know, hospitable, nice, safe um, accommodation while they get here, while it's getting processed, and give them the right to work and support themselves so we don't have to pay for them to live in hotels and um, prisons when they've done nothing wrong. Um, it isn't possible to be an illegal asylum seeker. It's only when you get here and they've gone through the system and they've decided that they can't stay and then they remain here that they can be considered illegal. It's all word plays and it's not true. The stuff you read in the papers isn't true. So um, no, I don't agree with it. It shouldn't happen. They should be given the right to either have their claim assessed in their own country before safely and protected while that happens, but we know that's not gonna happen. They should be given the ability to just catch a plane like everybody can. Get on a plane, hop over to the country like we can to theirs. You know, there is inequality beyond measure in this world, double standards, um, you know, different tiers of what people are seen as being valuable. And again, you know, I believe it comes down to uh, the way the world has become monetized. If you don't, if you're not seen as, um, you know, valuable in a monetary way to these oligarchs that own all the world, you're dismissed as just nothing but fodder. And they're treating people like animals, worse than animals. And uh, I think, because we, 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 we talk about refugees in, in general terms, but, but I think, from what uh, research that James has done in, in preparation for this, about half the world's refugees are children. Absolutely. How many of these are coming, coming, getting onto these boats or whatever routes they're taking without family, without parents, mm. uh, traveling under their own steam? Uh, how, easy, how easy is it to, to support those people, the most vulnerable people? Uh, and, and you know, what's the impact that it has on them? Because I, I can't begin to imagine yeah, you know, traveling, traveling in those conditions without a loved one. Well, they're traumatized from the minute they leave their house. They're probably traumatized before they leave as well because, you know, the horrific Circumstances life. Circumstances why they're leaving, yeah. That's exactly. Right. I mean, we've got Galwali Pasali coming up next week to say hi. He's doing a talk at Shrewsbury School and he's written a book called The Lightless Sky, I think. Um, and he was a young and accompanied asylum seeker who had to leave at the age of eight or nine because the Taliban... Um, came back into power or something, and I can't remember the details now, but he was basically um, in a position where he couldn't win and had to get out of um, 
of that country. And so he did that long, arduous journey. He was separated from his brother. You know, they've now since been reconnected. And he's now a public speaker, author, and a politician who is speaking up for the rights of these young unaccompanied asylum seekers. And so we do get a lot in this country. They mostly obviously end up in, in the southern counties, in the you know, predominantly Kent, which is why there are dispersal systems throughout the local authorities. Um, and they agree to take in a certain amount of children and put them into the, the local support systems and networks. Each county does it differently. So um, the Shropshire side of of Shropshire, um, they mostly feel it's better to um, support them in cities where they want to be, around people they can access, people from their own culture, support in their own language. So, you know, we, we look after them by sending social workers out there to support them a lot of the time. Sometimes they stay in the county. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know if, what happens in Telford. I think the same, mostly they, kept, they keep them in, but I've yet to sort of find out what's happening in Telford. Um, so it is, you're, you're dealing with broken kids by the time they get here. You can only hope that they're surrounded by caring people and supported, and I think mostly that is the case. They would be going to schools or colleges where they're given English classes. And there are lots of organisations around the country, a bit like mine, who um, put in that extra support and the nice stuff and the opportunities. And um, hopefully mental health is you know, looked after and identified if there's any issues and they get that support. But as soon as they turn 18 or 21, when they leave education, everything goes, mm. they don't have any support. It stops like that. Yeah. Just stops. So, um, you know, if you're lucky, they've gone through the asylum system and they've come out with leave to remain, but that can take years. Like I think maybe four or five years is an average time for that to happen. In the meantime, they're just in stasis, in, in limbo land. They can't put their roots down. They dared and put their hopes up. They survive in this kind of ne neglected emotional state where they're not sure if they're going to, at any point, be just shipped back to the country which they've escaped from, and all of this was for nothing. Um, so there's a lot of depression throughout, not just the young people, but adults in particular. Depression, um, PTSD trauma-related, somatic problems, um, you know, suicides. There's a lot. Um, and mental health services are under strain already in this country, you know. So certainly what we try to do is to put in that gentle psychosocial sort of support, that stuff that makes them feel like they're not alone, that we value them, that we want to hear their stories, that we want to support their ambitions and you know we put activities in place and we um we give them opportunities to make their food and share their food and meet other cultures and we give them friends and volunteers and opportunities to volunteer and education and make them feel human again um so we try to take the pressure off the mental health services in that way and then i'm stepping it up a little bit more next, this year and next year with um a program that we're putting together for you know to basically try and sort of, I guess, bridge the gap between the formal mental health services and what we're able to provide with volunteers from mental health backgrounds. So that'll be exciting. But at the moment, we don't do a lot of hands-on work with the young unaccompanied asylum seekers because local authority and social services very much have that covered. And like I said, in our position where we are based at the moment in Shrewsbury, there isn't a lot of them in Shrewsbury. So they know we're there for them. We've met with them in times and we invite them along to things. And yeah, the, there is a lot of these guys. They are 
broken. But, you know, I have full confidence that with the right people around them, you can build them back up again and they can have good, successful lives. Um, I read, I think it was on your, uh, somewhere on your social media, that uh, you gravitated towards helping people from a young age. Um, how did this lead to the setting up of the charity? I'm a soft git. <laughs> I, I had the mantra of charity leaders everywhere. How did you get started? I'm a soft git. Yeah, I had no idea it would become this big and um, so much work. And I honestly don't, I wouldn't change it in a million years. I'd quite like my evenings and weekends back after seven <laughs> years, but um, it, we'll get there. So... I did. I don't know why. I think I just had a great couple of parents and a really good experience of, um, of, of childhood. And I did experience moving abroad. And I know what it, likes, what it feels like to get to a country and not speak the language and have to start again. I know where was it. that? Where did you? Where did Went you... to Italy. Oh, Very wow. civilised. My dad worked for um, Magnetti Morelli and... Um, oh, what was it? It was a conglomerate between Fiat and Becco. He was that sort of... Uh, director of finance i think it was something like that anyway so we got we got took over there so i had to say goodbye to everyone and everything that i'd ever known and it was heartbreaking but also exciting and i embraced it and for four years you know i loved it but i understand the challenges around moving to a country without i guess as an adult it's even harder isn't it i i was all right i went to an american school it was all very lovely but then I had to move again and I had to leave everything I'd built up for four years and, you know, it broke my heart. And so I know what it is to start again and I know how important it is to feel supported and have a pathway. So um, I guess maybe that did it. Also, um, I am quite interested in things like epigenetics and, and, and genetics and DNA and all that sort of stuff. I am a quarter Chinese and my dad's mum was Chinese. She's now deceased, but... Um, she and her family were made refugees um, when the communists took over China and they had to walk along the, the Great Wall of China in this horrifically traumatic journey where they had to leave all their belongings behind. And many, many people died on that route. And she took that route and lived in Hong Kong, you know, in, in a fairly successful family for the rest of her life. And between that time, she had my dad. And I do feel maybe that's in my DNA. Yeah, and maybe this triggered something when I saw footage of thousands of people walking with everything that they could carry down motorways in Europe looking for somewhere safe to be. I mean, I just thought, oh, my God, why aren't people just opening up their doors and letting them in? So what were you doing? What were you doing before this? And what were you, you know, when you saw that, when the penny dropped and went, I need to help these guys? <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, my my background, um, really, apart from working in pubs and restaurants as a youngster, <laughs> um, was working with children with disabilities. I worked in various settings. I worked in um, the children with disabilities team for a couple of years in, in Shropshire. I worked in schools. I did support work in outreach. I, I worked in children's homes. And then I moved specifically to just working with children in children's homes. And I was doing that for... Um, a good four years before I became pregnant with my second child when I was 40 and I was actually at home with him um, he was probably about two when I started to see the footage of um, Syria and um, you know I do wonder where I was for the rest of the 20-30 years before then because the other wars absolutely escaped my knowledge I didn't I just wasn't 
doesn't I never watch the news. I didn't, you know, think about it. What, you know, what can I do? They're all the way over there anyway. It's, it's, it goes to, to what you were saying right at the beginning, that it seems yeah. so distant and so yeah. big. Um, yeah. the, you do almost see it and go, yes, this is a, a tragedy and I can yeah. give five quid to a charity, but, but that's all I can do. Yeah, but it's in Iraq, but it's yeah. in Iran, yeah. all of those things. So I think... I feel like seeing those, I've always helped people. I'm an annoying one of those do-goody people that helps <laughs> friends and families wherever I can. Um, but I feel like um, that was a real call to arms and that was like, come on, what we're made of, what we're gonna do here. And when I realized that they were being stopped at Calais, well, number one, I was just horrified. Like, like, why are they being stopped at Calais? They clearly want to get here. I didn't know at the time about the billions of pounds that our government puts into trying to keep them from getting from France to here. Um, well, that's another matter. When you think about the money they've spent on being hostile, they could have built about 10,000 houses in every town with that money. Um, so basically I made it my business to find out what was happening and how I could help. I spent months researching and um, eventually came up with a plan. I'd heard somebody on the radio in Shropshire talking about raising money for a caravan, taking that down, and I thought, I can do that. It's something I can do. So I rallied all my mates together, who a lot of them are very talented musicians and artists, and asked them to, um, to donate their time. And that you know we had a, a fundraiser at the uh, Loopy Shrew where we auctioned stuff off. We had bands, music, musicians. And I was amazed, actually, at the response when I basically said, well, to my mates, who wants to do this? And, you know, a whole bunch of my friends came out and said yes. And then from that, probably 30 of my mates and I started a Facebook group called Shrewsbury Supports Refugees. Um, <clears throat> but then when it got out, what we were doing, the amount of people that came to me and said, oh, my God, I've been wanting to help and I didn't know how. Yes, please, here, have this for the auction or have this donation or whatever it was. I was just inundated with offers and I was like, wow, that's really amazing. And all it is was that people didn't know how to help. So it's really what we've done now is turn that into a full-time charity where we are just facilitating offers of support and help and obviously going for grants so that we can make that happen. Um, there's 3,800 people in that Facebook group now and I had to change it to Shropshire Support <coughs> Refugees because yeah. obviously it was the whole of Shropshire that wanted to help. Um, but you won't, you won't see that in the page. The page is, is public. It doesn't have as yeah. much activity in it. But um, so I realized then that somebody just wanted someone to take the lead and tell them how they could help and help that to happen. So um, I went to Calais with about three and a half grand and a caravan. <laughs> and even, even in that process, somebody had heard about what I did. And this was going on all across the country. So there's little grassroots mm. organizations all across the country doing the same as me. And at the time, um, there was a, the WI in St Albans get, got in touch with me and said, look, we've heard what you're doing. Can we have your caravan to make it look really amazing before you send it down? And so oh, wow. we left it there and they absolutely, they put farrow and ball paint all over it. They changed the interior into something that you would just pay thousands of pounds a night for. And we just filled it with donations. And I took it to Calais with my son and his girlfriend at the time and my friend. And um, we just distributed the money, distributed stuff, helped out in a tent that was looking after all the young people that were on their own. And it was just, it was just um, traumatizing. I'd Actually, never yeah. experienced anything like it before. I couldn't believe, you know, 10,000 people living in squalor with no support from any government, 
with only people supporting them and keeping them alive, bringing food in, mostly from England, mm. the amount of aid that went into Calais to keep people alive was extraordinary, and it's still happening now. Yeah. I mean, you say we see these refugee camps and we see them on foreign shores and we see shanty towns in places like Brazil and stuff, but you hear about it in Calais, but I don't think we ever make that connection of what it actually looks like, what it feels like to be in those mm. camps. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a different story now because back then um, it was called the jungle because it was just unruly and there was all sorts of horrible things happening in that place um and of course it got burnt down mm. so then now the the french police do their very best to keep the people in cali to a minimum although there is always thousands of people there but now they're hiding in the trees hiding in the sand dunes hiding in derelict buildings and they are regularly attacked by the police on a nightly basis their stuff is taken away from them Far-right activists are given access to do what they want with those guys and have free reign. Um, and they're just being kept alive by the likes of Care for Calais and other wonderful people that have turned into charities since the seven years ago, like I did. And they're still putting things down there, keeping people alive and um, hoping that they survive the journey over really but then you get the sharks as well the ones that are making thousands of pounds of profit of from this yeah. and they're vile and you know they don't treat these people nice they attack them they kill them they torture them they're horrible um but everywhere you go there are those sorts of people waiting to benefit from from misery and and um, disasters and what does what so since one man in a caravan yeah one lady in a caravan, so what do, what does the charity what does the support you offer look like now? So if 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 yeah. somebody how 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 do people come to you, um, and then what what happens from that process? So we've evolved and we have had to change how we do things roughly every six months because that seems to me about the time I'm given <laughs> to grow <laughs> and expand into the need and. Yeah. Um, so when I was first asked to support, uh, when I came back from Calais, I happened to know someone in the local authority who was sitting on the cross-party um, meetings and they were planning to resettle 23 Syrian families. And I didn't know anything about it, but they, um, the head of um, the resettlement at the time contacted me and phoned me up and said, look, we've heard about what you did. Would you like to support Refugee Action, who were commissioning to resettle our refugees, um, to support them? And I was like, yeah, definitely tell me what you want. So they said, well, it's just collecting clothes and toys and household goods. And really, that's it. Um, I was like, yeah, we can do that. So I rallied my mates up again and ramped up the Facebook group and um, did that. So we, we, there was another lady who was doing it in Oswald Street for the five families that were coming there. So I touched base with her. And then I was asked to support three families that were coming in August. And so we did it with vigor and we, we went around and we got hampers of welcome goods from all the local producers in Shropshire as well. So they really got a feeling that they were welcomed and that this is what we do in this county. Look what we make and, you know, well, be a part of it. And I think that those gestures made so much difference to those people. And I've heard it time and time again. They're terrified when they get here. They're expecting hostility. They don't know where to start or turn to. So when they're welcomed with a big smile and a, and a welcome hamper, it can change their lives, you know? Um, so we, we bought money, we raised money and bought them things that they couldn't get themselves, like TVs and kitchen appliances to make their lives easier. And for me, it's, it's about leveling it up, you know, to, to basically what most people in this country have got in their houses to make their lives easier. 
Um, we don't agree with the word spoiling people. I think everybody should have that. And if they haven't, then there's something going wrong, mm. isn't there? So we did that for 18 months voluntarily. But what happened was the refugees stayed in touch with me and they started asking me for extra help. They needed um, more English practice. They wanted people to show them around the area. They wanted to um, have opportunities you know, like tourism, to know where to go. They wanted help to find the right furniture in their houses that they wanted. So I would just be like, okay, leave it with me. I'll go and find out what the group has got. And a lot, lot of Googling. I would, in the I would just days. say, yeah, has anybody got another mattress or has anyone yeah. got this, that? And then I would just be inundated with these things and then I would just distribute them. So that obviously was becoming a full-time job for me. And that was a point where I needed to get a job and work. So I went to the local authority and I said, look, I'm really keen to do this, but I need some money now. So they very kindly gave us a small grant and it was small, but it was enough to, you know, make, pay me part time, if you like, um, to support these guys and then to put activities and family and take them out for the day and be nice and be there for them at the end of the phone. And a, a lady called um, Karaman Yakul from the local mosque got in touch with me. She spoke Arabic. So she was able to help me really get to know what these families really needed and understand as well what their emotional needs were, what their physical needs were, what their cultural needs were. And I think without that, I couldn't have done what we've done really, but just having that from their own mouths rather than assuming yeah. things. So then we started putting on English classes with volunteer teachers and they just became really full up. Um, and so now we've become, you know, we, we had to turn it into a not-for-profit CIC so that we could go for grants from the likes of the lottery, um, Barrow Cadbury's. They started helping me to get admin support in for what I do, pay for a venue. Um, and then we all the way through, we've been given grants from the from Shropshire Local Authority to do the work we do. And they were very humble grants to start with, you know, just enough to do what we needed to do with 23 families, really. Um, and then things, just as they started to go quiet with, um, with the Syrian project, Afghanistan happened. And... By then, we were in quite a good position to be able to mobilise quickly. Although we didn't have any Afghans in our side of Shropshire, I was able to make contact with the ones in Telford yeah. and find out what they needed. And um, we had a gigantic swathe of offers of support come in and we manned the phones um, for two weeks. We processed 1,900 phone calls and um, wow. messages and emails sorry, of support for, for the guys coming from Afghanistan. And we were donated so much stuff that we had to have a massive warehouse given to us um, by Morris Property um, for six months to just process that. So that was all we did for six months was processing um, wow. those donations, as well as still supporting the Syrians mm. and as well as putting on a couple of activities for the kids. But then, you know, they were in Telford and Telford were perfectly capable of supporting them and they brought it they, they'd already brought in a um, volunteer group called the St Vincent's de Paul group who are still to this day supporting the guys in that hotel so we've been in you know contact with them all but we didn't get heavily involved um, because we didn't need to and so just as that started to go a little bit quieter um, by February 21 no hang on it was it was August, September 21 when the Afghan crisis happened. So in February 22, the funding was drying up, the Syrian project had finished, um, the Afghans being looked after, and we were literally thinking, right, well, 
Sainsbury's here we come. <laughs> um, but, you know, of course, we do so much more than just supporting the families. We raise awareness, we do talks, we roll out the City of Sanctuary um, project. Um, we still support families that need it. We still put on lots of English classes. We were still doing all that stuff. We were looking at how we were going to support that. We didn't know where the money was going to come from. And we were asking the lottery for more money to keep us going. Then um, we sort of closed down the, the clothing unit in sort of February of 22. And at the end of February 22, we got told that we were going to be getting Ukrainian guests. And by the way, could we support that? And so with the help of the local authority in Shropshire, the um, shopping centres in um, Shrewsbury and the Darwin Centre, we were given two properties mm. and the funds to turn that into a Ukrainian welcome um, hub, if you like, which I did on the basis that it would never just be for Ukrainians. Yeah. We're yeah. Shropshire supports all refugees. Yeah. And so um, we opened it for everybody. And with the help of the Ukrainians who were landing and just getting off their aeroplanes and coming to us, we set that up within a month. Um, we put all the clothes that we had left into one unit and we set the, the next unit up as a welcome reception area, which is just so friendly. It's like someone's living room. You walk into it and people can just go and help themselves to drinks, help themselves to food, cook for each other and also get the support they need. So over the last year, that's become... <clears throat> the centre point of all our activities. And we have people like the housing team dropping in on a weekly basis. Lando, um, the charity that helps with employability, came through all last year on a weekly drop-in. We had Enable come in every week. They still come and visit us. And loads of other organisations and departments that use that space to access all the refugees that we support in Shropshire um, and have meetings and, and we do activities and we celebrate their cultural days and we um, we deal with serious issues. Anyway, that's the hub then. So that was full on, loads of like hours and burnout and everything else happened as we, as we welcomed 600 Ukrainians mm. into the county and then another 200 or 300 from Telford who were also coming to see us. And I was just starting to think, oh, I can get back to my normal life now. We were very well funded by the local authority. They, they allowed us to employ people. We employed seven Ukrainian staff who just took the challenge and, and embraced it. Right. And so altogether now we're a team of 15. And it started to get a bit quieter in sort of September and October. And I went on holiday in November thinking I can... About time for a holiday? <laughs> I went to Egypt. <laughs> And on my holiday, okay. I got the phone call. We've got an asylum hotel in Shrewsbury. And I'm like, great, I'm in, I'm in Egypt. What am I supposed to do? But my team absolutely ran with it. And um, they, they made sure the guys had their, what they needed in the way of socks and pants and nail clippers of all things. I think we spent 300 quid on nail clippers. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and then since then, we've raised funds to make sure they've all got clothes and shoes because they came in, you know, they landed in, in, in flip-flops mm. and no jackets and nothing. So um, we had to raise the funds for that and buy them all shoes and clothes. And then we started to rally together the English teachers and said, look, you know, this isn't funded, but if you can put in free English classes to this lot, we would be so grateful. And so now I think we've got about five English classes that go in there. Um, we've set them up with volunteering opportunities. We've helped them with mental health. We've worked closely with Circo. 
to make sure their well-being is looked after and um, the hotel staff and the management of they've all given us free access to there to help them um, with the other stuff you know so the hotel makes sure they're safe they've got a roof over their head and they're fed and then they get eight quid a week and that's it mm. to live off um eight pounds a week and so Circo are there to sort of make sure their their needs are being met and make sure they get doctor's appointments, make sure their paperwork is processed. Migrant help comes in and does that and does that, does that. So between us all, we all make sure that's covered. And then I do the community cohesion, the getting the locals involved, getting them into the society. So people don't think they're like these untouchable um invaders which is what the, the papers would like us yeah. to think that they've got a lot to offer and a lot to give and they're lovely people and we should help them and so they've got friends now and they've got access to volunteering opportunities um they can come to the hub and have space whenever they need to get out of the hotel um we celebrate eid we put a meal on for 60 men um on eid and uh, ramadan sorry a ramadan meal we do eid parties we try and we try and celebrate everyone's needs, including the Ukrainians. Obviously, we celebrate all their cultural days as well. And in the meantime, while all this is going on, we're still supporting the Syrians. We're still supporting the yeah. Ukrainians. We're still supporting the Afghans. We're still, and it's just grown, grown, grown. So we thought we'd done quite well with the Shrewsbury Hotel, and it was all going well, and it was starting to get quiet, and I was starting to think about a holiday. <laughs> and then, you and really then we need got... to stop thinking about holidays. That's, <laughs> it's your own fault. <laughs> we got a phone call saying that Telford was getting a hotel, and I'm like... Well, do you know what? I'm really pleased because I've seen how it's gone in Shrewsbury mm. and um, what amazing people have come together. Different sporting activities have been arranged for them. We took them all out for a sports morning in Shrewsbury with the help of Energised Telford and Rekin, um, Joe Lockley Boxing, Shropshire Cricket Board. Our old um, friend, Joe Lockley. The Shrewsbury the town and the community <laughs> were amazing. Um, and they continue, and the health team in Shrewsbury got them into a 12-week football project with the Shrewsbury town and the community. That extended to them being able to use their gym facilities because keeping these guys busy and mentally well, getting them physically fit, looking after their well-being is in the benefit of everybody, not just them. Yeah. So I could see how well it had gone in Shrewsbury, and I thought we can do this in Telford, we really can, and we have. And so last week we were able, well, this week actually, we were able to do another welcoming activity where they got to take um, over the um, Telford Tennis Centre uh, with the help of the local authority. Um, Carolyn Healy came and Energize helped us again. Um, the Shropshire FA were there, so now they've got access to football facilities. Um, we've had so many ongoing offers from that. There was the Shropshire Pickleball guys there. J uh, Joe Lockley Boxing was there again. The Shropshire Cricket Board were there again. And, you know, we've managed to arrange some weekly football for them, and we're starting to put English classes in, and we've got them all shoes and trainers and clothes, and um, we will continue to rise to the challenges.